Our scripture reading this morning is 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4, but only the first seven verses. 2 Kings chapter 4, 1 through 7. Listen, this is God's word. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. This story and this sermon need no fancy introduction. This story draws you in immediately and keeps you hanging to the very end. And like every good story, it has a beginning, it has a middle and an end, and so this sermon shall too. The beginning, though, notice, is uh, filled with drama. It begins by introducing us to a nameless woman who is the wife of one of the sons of the prophets. She cries out to Elisha, And only then, and rather than have us be told as a part of the narrative that she's a widow, we hear it in her own words. Your servant, my husband, is dead. We can take a moment here to have a little aside and to have some understanding about the sons of the prophets. Remember, we met the sons of the prophets in that transitional story between Elijah and Elisha as Elijah was going before he ascended into heaven. These were the men who met them and who tried to remind Elisha or let him know that Elijah was going to leave. But they're also the first to acknowledge the identity of Elisha after he crosses the Jordan River, having struck it with Elijah's mantle, and they say of him, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. Now, we don't know a good deal about these men, this school of the prophets or the sons of the prophets, and therefore, we don't know a lot about this woman. 
But remember, these are the days when the worshipers of the true God of Yahweh were few. And the worship in Israel of the Canaanite god Baal was rampant. We remember Elijah's lament to the Lord, he's the only one left. But we also remember the Lord's response, no, there are, I have 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Somewhere along the way, probably following the example of Samuel before, Elijah seems to have started, and Elisha is continuing a school of prophets, a kind of, if you will, an Old Testament seminary, likely being trained in the Torah and in faithfulness to the Lord. So the woman now who cries out to Elisha is introduced first as a seminary wife or about two seconds later in her own voice, she's a seminary widow. And she adds a line, easy to pass over, you know that your servant feared Yahweh. It's a kind of line that's easy for us to pass over, but then if we think about it, it's the kind of line with which we easily resonate. If my now-deceased husband feared Yahweh, why is he dead? Or even maybe more pointedly, if my husband feared Yahweh, why am I in this predicament? Why am I in this moment of dire need, real crisis? And here, as the story uh, it gets told, it keeps getting worse. She's in debt. We're not told how large the debt is or to whom it is owed or whether it's a debt her husband had acquired before his death, a student loan perhaps, or if it was a debt she took on after his death in order to provide for her family since she has no other way of earning income. Or maybe she, like every seminary wife, had only ever known poverty. Whatever the case, this uh, here presents for us a picture contrary to what life in the good land should be like. This was the Lord's land. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, remember. It was a land of abundant produce, of flocks and fruit, of trees and grain, of houses and wells, and of wine and of oil. Something's very clearly wrong with this picture, as something is very clearly wrong throughout the Old Testament, anytime there is famine or drought or, or need. But then it gets even worse. Not only is she a widow in debt, but the debt holder, the creditor, the banker has been sniffing around, knocking on her door, looking for his payment, and probably more than once. She got the 90-day notice and the 60-day notice and the 30-day notice, and to make matters worse, now he has told her on this last time there, the next time he comes, he's coming to collect the boys. And they will be his slaves, either in payment of the debt or so that they can work for him until the debt is paid. But even that detail is left out of the story. But it's a tremendously sad state of affairs, isn't it? This woman is a widow. She's worse than poor. 
She's lost her husband. She's about to lose her children, her only source of companionship and income, but also her lifeline to the next generation, her only sons. If they are going to be taken into slavery to work off the debt, surely they could have worked to provide for their mother. She's vulnerable as a woman. She's deprived of a husband and now a widow. She's worse than poor. She's filled with dread. She's destitute and desperate. She's stuck. There's no way out. But she does the one thing she can do. She cries out to Elisha. But there's still more tension in the story, at least for a brief moment, because Elijah speaks in verse 2 and says, what can I do for you? And now we might read this as eagerness to help, but it could also sound to her ears like Elisha is, at least temporarily, befuddled. Where do I start? What could I possibly do for you? But notice at this point, she's not actually articulated a request. It's important to catch this. She's only simply told a very abbreviated, truncated version of her story. It's a whole series of problems, but it's a very short version of her story. It's her problem, and it's a big one. But she doesn't say to Elisha, here's what I ask you to do. And it's almost as if she can't even dare to bring herself to make a specific request. Or she can't even imagine what a solution might be. Or she can't even dream of what Elisha might be able to do to address her situation. Have you ever met someone like that? Or have you ever been in this kind of predicament? A situation so dire, so hopeless, you hardly know where to start. You hardly know what to ask for. You cry out for help, but you either don't know what kind of help you need, or you dare not presume upon anyone who might be in a position to offer aid, or dare to imagine what kind of help they could provide. Good news, of course, here in this story is Elisha's a man of God, and he's God's man, and we come to discover Elisha represents God to God's people. And what do we know about God as he reveals himself to us in the Old Testament? He's a God who sees, and a God who hears, and a God who notices, and who cares for the weak and the vulnerable and the oppressed. And he's a God of tenderness and compassion. Deuteronomy 10, 17 comes to mind. For the Lord Yahweh, your God, is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial, who takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. Or Exodus 22, 22 and following, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, 
I will surely hear their cry. This poor woman cries out to Elisha because Elisha represents to her God on earth. And then curiously, at least for the moment, Elisha asks her to take inventory of her house. And this is where we really get to the end of the road. Not only is she a widow, in debt, about to lose her sons to slavery, she gives this additionally sad report. She has in her possession only one jar of oil. Looked around the house, that's all I've got. And if you're wondering if this story sounds vaguely familiar, you might be remembering the story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. That woman who, in a time of drought, had just a little bit of oil and and a handful of flour. She's collecting sticks to make one last fire to cook one last meal for herself and her son before they die. And Psalm 68.5 tells us God is a father of the fatherless and a protector of widows. Psalm 146 tells us he executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. He opens the eyes of the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And this widow in debt, about to lose her two fatherless sons to settle that debt, with only one jar of oil, cries out to Yahweh because she cries out to Elisha. Well, that's just the beginning of the story, and it's only going to get better. This woman's day is only going to get better. This woman's life is only going to get better. You get to the middle of the story and pick up at verse 3, and we see Elisha coming up with this unexpected but really delightful plan. Go outside, run around the neighborhood, and borrow vessels from all your neighbors. Every empty vessel, not a few. I wonder if you picked up the echoes in the story of the Exodus. An event promised in Exodus 3, fulfilled in chapters 11 and 12, when the Lord, through Moses, announced the last of the ten plagues about to come and the success that plague will have in prompting the Egyptians to release God's son, the nation, from their slavery. The slaughter of a firstborn son, all the sons not protected by the blood on the doorposts, He predicts the impending end of their slavery and he tells his people, on your way out, you are actually going to find favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. You will not leave empty-handed. And he says this, each woman shall ask their neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for articles or vessels of silver and gold. You shall put them on your son's And on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. 
And the word used in both Exodus 2 and then in 11 and 12, or 3 rather, in 11 and 12, uh, sometimes over-translated in some of our versions as jewelry that you'll receive from them or ask of them and you'll be given gold and silver jewelry is simply a word that means either articles, utensils, or vessels. And it's the same word used here. The Israelites were to go to their neighbors and she was to go to hers and she was to gather up vessels and not a few. And when she's gathered them up, she's to go inside her house and she's to start pouring. And if you're wondering why Elisha commands her to do this behind closed doors, there are a couple of possible options, but at least one that seems compelling to me is that the creditor is probably nearby. It's possible Elisha has Deuteronomy 20, uh, 24, 10, 11 in mind, where he says, when you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. Sort of castle doctrine or something like that. Be that as it may, we can't, I don't think, be entirely sure, but the command is clear enough. Get empty containers and start filling. When you filled one container, set it aside and start it on the next one. And you have this picture of, of near immediate obedience on the part of the woman. She gathers and she pours. The woman pours from her jar. You have this image of one of her sons perhaps steadying the container into which the oil is being poured. The other son reaching for the next container or jar and also apparently running around the neighborhood calling out to see if there are not any more. And then this is the moment where the wonder and the amazement begin to kick in. She keeps pouring. Vessels keep coming. Oil keeps flowing. Jar after jar, until finally every once empty pot and pan, jar and jug, bottle and barrel is filled. And so intent is she in her pouring, she tops off what we now know is the last one, and she calls out for the next one. And her son responds with maybe the most amazing words in the chapter, there is not another. And only then, the oil stops flowing. Every empty container that could possibly hold liquid is full. And I like to wonder about the neighbors who must have been wondering, what is she doing over there? Why does she need every container in the village? I've looked everywhere. I've given them everything I've got. Well, then we get to the end of the story, verse 7. Elisha's question of verse 2, what shall I do for you or what can I do for you, is clearly answered. 
the widow finds Elisha. She tells him the news. And he gives her three additional simple commands. Easy to fulfill. Go, sell, live. Go sell off the oil, pay off your debts, and you and your sons shall live on the rest. What began as an empty house with one container has been a house filled with full containers. She has more than she needs to pay off the debt. Her past debt can be forgiven. Her future life and the lives of her sons is now secure. The empty has been made full. The poor rich, the slaves free, and the threat of death is replaced by the promise of life. Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that so many people can eat? He said this to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, took stock. He did an inventory. And he said, here's a boy here who's got five barley loaves and two fish. We've got one little jar of oil. What are they for so many? Jesus took the loaves when he'd given thanks. He distributed to those who were seated and the fish as much as anyone wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather the leftover fragments that nothing be lost. So they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. The Lord's provision through Elisha solves all of her problems and more extends her life and the lives of her sons and is itself a picture of the everlasting, endless life we will have with God in Christ, a full-orbed salvation, body and soul. And as great as God's work is in the life of this widow, Think again, as I've encouraged you to do from time to time, how these stories are read and heard by a nation either approaching exile, in exile, or just returned from exile. The nation of Israel was supposed to remember that it had once been sold into slavery in Egypt but had been brought into the fullness and the abundance of enjoyment of the promises of God in this good land accomplished for them through his mighty act his his mighty hand his outstretched arm the nation was to remember the Lord had threatened to sell them again for their sins of idolatry for trading him in 
for other gods. And so the Lord will use the same language we find here of this woman applied to the whole nation. Listen to the prophet Isaiah speaking to subsequent generations, chapter 50. Thus says Yahweh, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. In other words, the Lord is going to use a similar kind of language of being sold into slavery initially, and now this threat of these sons being sold into slavery, he's going to apply this to the whole nation. She is more than a woman whose needs are met. She's a picture. The nation's supposed to hear this story and realize that the God who both threatens and fulfills his threats of them being sold again is also the God who restores, who gives life. And if you're wondering why the account of the Lord's miraculous provision through Elisha of so many vessels being filled with oil, why this story seems to just appear out of nowhere. And if you were here last week and you remember the story of the battle with Moab where there seems to be this partial victory by Moab over Israel or at least an incomplete victory on the part of Israel and Judah. And it has something to do with the offering of the king of Moab's firstborn son in fire to the god of the Moabites, to Chemash. Then listen to the words of the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 48. Remember answering the question, why does Elisha and the widow's oil story show up right after that story of Moab? Prophet Jeremiah, chapter 48, speaks a word of judgment against Moab. He had been speaking warnings of God's judgment coming to God's people, but he wants to let them know Moab and all the other nations are not going to remain unscathed. He says this, Moab has been at ease from his youth and has settled on his dregs. He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile, so his taste remains in him. His scent is not changed. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall send to him pourers who will pour him and empty his vessels and break his jars into pieces. Then Moab shall be ashamed of Chemosh, as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel. But then come with me again to the New Testament where we need to end every Old Testament story. Jesus performs his miracles of abundance. And as with Elisha, so with Jesus, his miracles provide an immediate blessing or benefit for the recipient. The widow in Elisha's story receives physical blessings and benefits. The people who received the multiplication of bread and fish were fed. They went home satisfied. They couldn't eat it all. And again, lest we over-spiritualize these stories, recognize God has a concern for the physical well-being of his people. And it's a concern that extends right through 
the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And so with Jesus and so with Elisha here, the stories, these miracles are more than simply alleviating a need. They're signs of something greater to come. They announce, they attest the arrival of the kingdom of God in Christ. They give us pictures of what that kingdom will be like when emptiness will be replaced with overflowing, when poverty will be replaced with riches, when lack and little are replaced with abundance, when the bondage of slavery is replaced with the freedom of sons and daughters, when the threat of impending death is replaced with a promise of everlasting and unending life. This story, Elisha and this widow's oil, should amaze us. It should dazzle us. And if you're amazed or dazzled by the compassion and the kindness and the grace of God to a nameless widow who has a cascading story of need and of God's compassion for her demonstrated in real and tangible ways, not simply meeting her need, but superabounding in oil and in his grace and his goodness, then you should rejoice and you should rest in our Lord Jesus Christ, who's not only paid the debt we owed to God in his death and resurrection, who's not only freed us from our slavery to sin, that we might be called sons and daughters of the living God, but who's also given to us a super abundance of his grace, of everything we need for this life, for the life to come, and who can do far more than we ask or even imagine. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, what a delightful story. What a delightful episode in your great plan of salvation. We thank you for lifting it out of the great grand story of your redemptive work and for placing it on the pages of your scripture so that we might hear it and know it, that we might be amazed by it. We might take it as a sense of warning for we often look for to our own resources and our ability to meet our needs, we rarely cry out for help. And when we do, we come with our own list of demands and in that way even would ask for far less than you could do. Lord, help us. We cry out to you. We are needy. We are dependent. How we thank you, though, Lord, for your superabounding grace beyond our ability to imagine that you do more than we can ask for. You give us everything we need for this life and the life to come. How we thank you for the demonstration of your kindness and compassion in our Savior Jesus, who came to do this and more for us and for a dying world around us. Lord, receive our thanks. Hear our prayer. We ask it all. In Jesus' name and all God's people say together, amen.